Hi. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Brendan McCarthy, the Chief Medical Officer of Protea Medical Center in Chandler, Arizona. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. Today we're doing part two, part two of our podcast on weight loss and the different metabolic ways of approaching weight loss in patients. Uh, yeah, the last episode I finished off by giving you a list of different labs that I think are important to run with people with obesity issues. And, and today I'm going to go more into specifics regarding each one. Um, estradiol. Why did I start with that one? So estradiol is associated with increased subcutaneous fat deposition, but it's also associated with gynoid fat deposition, which is a funky word. Gynoid fat distribution is basically hourglass. It's just hourglass. It's why a woman has curves. That's, and estrogen's not bad, okay? Estrogen's great. Um, it has a bad reputation, and, and it's important to have. We need it. And, and I can't tell you how many people that I've seen clinically try and lose weight uh, by eliminating estrogen in their body, you know, I, and I've seen people do that. And I've, I've read in the, the, the literature as well, um, people abuse uh, different steroids, like in some cases they'll use, um, they're called aromatase inhibitors. I've seen men do this, where they cut their estrogen down so low that they tr think that's going to help them get really lean. And that's just dangerous and not healthy. We need estrogen, but it needs to be at the right ratio at the right place. So with women, estrogen is what gives a woman curves and it's what builds collagen. And if you think about it, towards menopause, estrogen drops down, what happens? You lose a lot of collagen and, and, and then you start losing those curves, that changes. But fat starts to migrate to the abdomen. That's the problem with estrogen. So estrogen keeps your, 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 your body fat in, in your curves and that's what, but when it drops, your body starts to migrate fat to the abdomen instead. So you need estrogen to be at a certain level in a person's body and a certain range of balance. So when it comes to estrogen, it is so critical that it's balanced in your body with progesterone for women, testosterone for men, but women, progesterone. And, and we know, studies show, that when we use hormone replacement therapy with women, progesterone and estrogen together, there's a shift from intra-abdominal fat back to gynoid fat and subcutaneous fat. Think about that. By returning a woman back to a normal balance of estrogen and progesterone, you lose the intra-abdominal fat and move back more towards normal curves that should be in a woman's body. So that's why I put estrogen and progesterone at the top of this because that's, it's a common, easy thing to look at and figure out. So... Further studies show that women long-term on hormone replacement therapy, that it prevents abdominal adipose tissue accumulation. That's common to menopause, and it preserves a healthier waist-hip ratio. What about testosterone in men and women? Let's start with women first, because we're talking about women for estrogen and progesterone. Let's talk about testosterone with women. You know, testosterone remains controversial in women, and 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 one reason why it's controversial for weight in women is because, you know, women with like things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, where they have elevated levels of free androgens in their body, you know, they tend to have weight gain, you know? And, and it goes back to hormones. When I was talking about estrogen earlier, it needs to be balanced. You can't be excessive and you can't be deficient. There's a sweet spot in the middle. This is what lab work is all about. And diagnosis is all about. Um, several studies show significant improvements in lean body mass and decreases in body fat with therapeutic non-pathological levels of testosterone in a woman's body. So again, that's just basically keeping them in the sweet spot. In men, 
We know that obesity impairs testicular testosterone production. It blunts it. So the more weight we gain as men, the more difficult it is for our body to produce testosterone. Testosterone deficiency is strongly linked to obesity in men as well. So it's this kind of a catch-22. You know, if you're, if you're gaining weight, it's going to decrease your testosterone. And if you have low testosterone, you're going to be gaining weight. So this is like self-feeding and self-moving forward. Um, low testosterone levels lead to increased body fat mass, mostly central adiposity is with women, same with men. It also uh, diminishes lean mass in men as well. And that lean mass, that really your, your muscle mass, really is responsible for reducing that body fat because it increases your basal metabolic rate. The better your muscle mass is, the more your body wants to burn fat at rest. Um, the metabolic dysfunction that comes with testosterone deficiency uh, includes things like uh, impaired glucose control. We know it reduces insulin sensitivity. We also know that men who have low testosterone have cholesterol issues and triglyceride issues specifically. Does this mean that when a woman or a man presents to clinic with weight issues, we should prescribe them testosterone? Nope, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. This is important that we do this nuanced. Because that's that's what you get when you go to a doctor's office and they say, oh, just lose weight, just stop eating so much, get off the couch. The same thing, people come in with weight issues, am I just gonna give them testosterone, think it's gonna help them? No, that's bad medicine. That's not what, that's not what I'm doing. That's not what we wanna do, that's lazy. We want to run lab work. If the person presents with obesity, it could be those hormones that I listed. The only way to know for sure, run the labs. Then you're not treating obesity. You're treating the hormone deficiency. And the symptom of the hormone deficiency is going to be the weight. We need to know the cause. Obesity is not the cause. It's the symptom. When a person presents to clinic, you don't just hand them a drug because you figure it works with some people. Let's see if it works with you. That's not good medicine. So again, people with a testosterone deficiency, women with a testosterone deficiency, men with a testosterone deficiency, when you give them testosterone back to a normal physiological level, not supra-physiological, not sub-physiological, but normal physiological yeah, you get results. It works. That's what it's for. Very important point. I want to make sure I make that. What about thyroid? <laughs> Thyroid's funny. You know, when I first got to med school, it was so popular to diagnose people with thyroid irregularities with weight issues. Like, oh, they're overweight. They need thyroid no matter what. And I, and I remember it was very popular to give people like high doses of thyroid to help them lose weight. Yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> I'll tell you, 20 years in the game, uh, Thyroid's very helpful in life. It's good for you. People who have a thyroid deficiency, when you normalize their thyroid, it will help with their weight. But to think that people who are overweight, if you give them thyroid, they're going to lose weight, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You need to get them normal physiological, and if that's what the cause of their weight gain was, they will lose weight. It'll be helpful. But again, just like what I mentioned a minute ago with testosterone, you're not going to be able to cause weight loss just by pumping them up with thyroid. It won't work. It only works to a certain degree with people who have a deficiency. Okay. About the thyroid really quick, because I haven't spoken about that yet. Thyroid is your, basically, it's like, it's like the, it plays the role of being the dimmer switch in your metabolism. You know, thyroid T3 specifically, that's the one 
that as it gets to the top end of the normal range, your metabolic rate is increased. The low end of the normal range, your metabolic rate is decreased. Okay, So it plays a role with metabolic rate in your body. And it's important to have it. You need it. But it needs to be right. It can't be excessive. It can't be deficient. Um, so by optimizing someone's thyroid, that plays an important role with metabolism. What about growth hormone? <laughs> IGF-1. That is like the third rail in medicine. Because it's... Uh, it's like testosterone. I should have made testosterone a bigger deal when I talked about it a minute ago, but I'll just make the big deal out of growth hormone. People just think they just take these drugs and they lose weight and that's all it is. It doesn't work that way. It's not, it, should, it just doesn't. You know, if you take growth hormone, because people buy growth hormone, you know, illegally plenty of times. I know that, you know, the people buy it on the dark web or whatever they're doing, it's just not good or buy the back of a truck somewhere in the gym somewhere. Yeah, don't do that. Don't. Don't do that, you know. Um, growth hormone, when you're a kid, it made you tall and it made you grow. And growth hormone, it's great for that and it helps you develop. As an adult, it slows down the degenerative effects of aging. It maintains and, and is important for your body's overall wellness. By jamming your levels up high, will you lose weight? Not really, not really. I mean, people, the only ones who tell you it does is people who are using it at high doses. You know that? Those are the people trying to sell you on it. You know, those are the ones who are making money in it. I, I, don't. Just don't. You know, it's, if, you're, if you're watching this and, you know, you found out you get some growth hormone on you, don't do it. You know, you want to know if you have a growth hormone deficiency. Sure. There are people that do have growth hormone deficiencies, and it is so important to address it. And we want to know. We want to run the lab. Lab. Always a lab with this stuff. Run, run the lab. Figure out if it's low, then treat it. Will that help with weight loss? Absolutely. If that's the deficiency, yes. But should you take growth hormone for weight loss? No. Will it work? Not really. You know, I mean, if you do abuse these drugs, think of this, okay? If you abuse growth hormone and testosterone, and when I say abuse, I mean just blindly injecting into your body without knowing how much you're supposed to have, how much you already have, and how much what you're taking is doing to your body. If you're doing that to yourself, um, how are you any different than the doctor who's prescribing fentramine uh, or any, any uh, methamphetamine analog? How are you different? You're actually worse because you're not even running a blood pressure. You don't, even, you don't have no idea what you're doing. And on top of that, your drug is from the streets, so we don't even know what's really in there. Will it work? Maybe short term. Just like fentramine may work short term, but it's not targeting the actual problem with you. Just like the treatments we mentioned for other people losing weight, it didn't fix them. If they went to their primary care provider, they said, cut your calories and, and, and exercise more and here's some fentramine. And you do that and maybe you lose five, 10 pounds, you gain it back. Same thing with growth hormone and testosterone. It may work for a little bit. But again, what you're doing you don't even know. So growth hormone, helpful when diagnosed appropriately. Run the labs. Yes, it plays a role. Not all the time, but it is important. Here's a big one. This is important. Cortisol. Because that's I see that everywhere. Cortisol is a primary cause of, of weight gain in people. And I want to make sure I make this very clear. You, I use this analogy all the time at work. <laughs> if any of my patients watch this podcast right now, they're going to be like, hey, he says this all the time, doesn't he? I do. All right. So 
go back to when you're like 18, you know, and you're dating someone and it's going great. And it doesn't have to be you. Maybe your friend had this happen to them. You're dating, it's freaking awesome. This is like the best relationship. This is the right person for you. And all of a sudden they dump you, right? And you lose 10 pounds, right? Remember that? It's high stress, weight loss. Why did that happen then? And why is it now when you're older and you have high stress, you gain weight? What the heck is that? Good question. All these commercials, all these years have conditioned us to believe that cortisol causes weight gain. I'm here to tell you that is not true. That is a lie. Bear with me. Cortisol, when we're young, induces the burning of fat. Think about it. Cortisol gets elevated with epinephrine, norepinephrine, adrenaline, and cortisol gets elevated during times of stress. Your body will liberate fat the idea it's gonna use that for energy short term because something bad is happening. So you're gonna need it, okay? So that's what happens when we're young. In the background, every stressful situation you go through as you go through life, your pancreas starts to respond with more and more insulin every time you eat. So all those times you have stress over and over and over again, your cortisol keeps jumping. Along with that, pancreas gets upregulated for production of insulin. So now, when you eat a carbohydrate, whatever it is, you should release a certain amount of insulin for that carbohydrate. Now, with a history of chronic stress, your insulin rate's much higher. You have more insulin than you're supposed to have from chronic stress. Not from diet, from stress. So, so the adrenals are very important with weight. Stress very important weight. So important to screen this stuff. So um, the impact of cortisol on weight is well documented. We know that. Uh, dysregulation of the adrenals from long-term exposure to adverse stressful events. You know, that leads to increased visceral fat, insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, impaired glucose tolerance, altered lipid profiles, and a very uh, high incidence of coronary artery disease. So insulin is, is primarily one of the big contributors to weight gain in people. Okay, and that's important. The role of insulin obesity centers on its inhibiting lipolysis, which is the breakdown of fat uh, and promoting the production of fat. That's one of the roles of insulin. You never thought that way, did you? I didn't, you know, when I was before med school. No, I never thought of insulin that way. I thought of insulin as insulin just grabs glucose, puts it in the cell and you have energy. You know, that's what we thought of insulin. No, it's more than that. Insulin promotes the production of fat and slows down the burning of fat. It's so important to acknowledge that and understand that. So long as there's insulin levels in your body that are higher than normal, you don't burn fat as an energy source. That is a fact. The other thing about insulin is that that is the one that's responsible for really promoting abdominal weight gain. That's the stuff that gives you belly fat is insulin. So how do we get high insulin? So important. Remember this. High insulin comes from chronic stress, high estrogen, overeating. Those are your big three. That's what does it, okay? But high insulin is really the culprit. We've already gone over how cortisol stimulates insulin. I'm gonna circle back to estrogen earlier. I'm gonna bring it back in right now. Estrogen stimulates insulin as well. It's a common thing during pregnancy for women to develop gestational diabetes and cause something called syndrome W, a lot of women who've had gestational diabetes will go on later on in life to have this hyperinsulinemia where their insulin's really elevated more than it should be relative to their diet. And that causes that weight gain in these women as well. 
And the third thing we all know that increases insulin is diet. You know, when you overeat, if you're if you're eating too many calories, surplus of calories will cause your insulin levels to go high. So with hemoglobin A1C, that's a blood sugar average. Uh, and that's your blood sugar average over the course of three months. And that's the most accurate way of looking at your blood glucose, in my opinion. You know, a fasting morning glucose is more indicating what you had the night before or if you have serious pathology. Other times you use a, a morning fasting glucose. But a hemoglobin A1C really is the thing that helps you understand why people gain weight. I can't tell you how often I'll have a patient present to clinic and they're 50, 60 pounds overweight and their hemoglobin A1C is 5.0. And, and with the range, we'd be clarity on that, 4.8 to 5.6 is normal, okay? 5.7 to 6.4 is prediabetes. 6.4 and higher, diabetes. So when a woman comes to clinic 70 pounds overweight, hemoglobin A1C, 5.0, do I tell her to cut calories? The hemoglobin A1C is telling me that she's not overeating, she, they, she, you can only go down to 4.8. I got frustrated with this my last podcast too. It's just, this is something that frustrates me because I'll see these women go to these clinics and being told, hey, you stop, stop overeating. She, her blood sugar is not high, so I know she's not overeating. I know this. But she's told that's the cause of the weight gain. That's not it. So it's important to see that there are plenty of people who are overweight that it is not from overeating. And the hemoglobin A1C is the best tool you're going to have to figure that one out. So after hemoglobin A1C, what other things out there? And all the other labs, as I mentioned earlier, food intolerances. Now, food intolerances do lead to obesity through chronic low-level inflammation of the white adipose tissue. So that systemic low-grade inflammation of adipocytes leads to insulin secretion. Long-term, so remember I mentioned stress, doing that for cortisol. Stress doesn't always have to be emotional. Stress can be physiological. So low-grade inflammation from eating foods your body is not tolerant of and having that immune response to those foods over time is going to trigger that insulin as well through that stress pathway. Very similar. So I've given you these labs you can do, these tests you could do. And, and you heard me. I cited the research there, right? And, and, and it's, in the, it's in the notes. It's in the description. You'll see the s- studies in there. I, this is real. You know, what I'm recommending is not crazy it's scientific it's it's you know why aren't we doing it why aren't doctors doing this why aren't doctors running all these labs you know why is this why is this being overlooked this is an epidemic this is a big thing this is i mean again go back to remember how smoking everyone quit smoking you know, when, when we all found out it was cancer, when a big deal came out and it was like the 80s and 90s, people all gave up smoking. We all did, collectively. Why are we unable to lose weight? So, so the big thing I want to address here right now is, is what holds us back. Not just the physicians, but also say what the patients was holding them back as well. Because it takes two. Um, why physicians will um, avoid weight loss with their patients. And this is a study here. Um, 52% of physicians say they avoid weight loss with their patients because they don't have enough time during the appointment. 45% say that there are more important things to discuss in the room with their patients. 27% say, I do not believe the patient is motivated to lose weight. 
I'm glad they think that way. 26%, I do not believe the patient is interested in losing weight. So the motivation and interest there is taken care of on their part. The part of the physician, they're the one that made that choice there. And then uh, 22% said the concern over patients' emotional state or psychological issues associated with weight loss prevented them from wanting to bring that up. That's, um, that's some of the reasons they're using. So let me rebut those. There is a massive problem in medicine when it comes to time expectations. We are more successful as physicians. Patients are much happier with outcomes when we spend more time in the room with our patients. You can't be a successful physician if you're in the room for less than 10 minutes. Now, there's going to be those, those situations where, yeah, it's, this is an ER, and we got to move through the room, and we have a crisis here, and we got to run through the room. Valid. But the only people that are arguing for doctors to stay as little time in the room and see as many patients as possible are bean counters, people needing to make money on this. Okay, doctors have been squeezed so much by the insurance industry and the system at large, where in order to be profitable and to make a living, they need to see patients every seven minutes. And that is awful, seven to 10 minutes. I, don't, I forgot what the statistic is, but this it's ridiculous. I mean, if you've been to a doctor, you know what I'm talking about. And if you are a doctor, you know what I'm talking about. This is wrong. This is wrong. We need to push back on that. There needs to be enough time in the room what kind of care are we giving then? This is why we have failure. We need to prioritize time with our patients to understand why they have pathology. So the first one is that. The other one is it's, it's, it's not really important. You know, the, the doctor feels there's, there's more important things to discuss in that appointment. Um, yeah, I think obesity is important to treat, you know. So the part where the doctor says, I do not believe the patient is motivated to lose weight and I do not believe the patient is interested in losing weight. Um, I want to say the, the physician's opinion on the readiness and ability of a patient to tackle weight loss is not a valid reason to withhold care. It just isn't. Not even remotely. And then finally, patients' psychological distress can easily be eased with healthy communication why is the patient nervous about bringing this up in the room? Well, a lot of times it's because there's been a lot of times they've gone to the clinic and they've felt shame and they were treated poorly. You know, we, I talked about that in last last episode about, you know, patients with shame and disgust, how, how there's studies showing that physicians approach the, the patients with obesity, you know, with that lens and, and, and that's um, affected so many people. People don't want to bring this up because all they're going to hear is the same old like, ah, Cut your calories, stop being lazy. You know? So, what about the patients? <laughs> why do the, because it takes two, as I mentioned. Why, why, why is the patients don't bring this up to their doctors? Well, you know, uh, in the study I cited, is that 44% um, say it is my responsibility to manage my weight. Okay. 37% of people say I already know what needs to be done to manage my weight. 23% say, I do not have the financial means to support a weight loss program. 21%, I do not feel motivated to lose weight. And 15%, I'm embarrassed to bring it up. My responses to that is like, while it's healthy to take responsibility for your own wellness and, and finding the solution though, in every case, 
requires perspective. You know, it's, it's illegal for a physician to treat themselves or even their family members. I don't know if you knew that. We don't have perspective on ourselves. I don't have perspective in treating myself. I cannot be an effective physician for myself by treating myself, okay? So it's important to have perspective. Two, you know, people say, I don't have enough money for this. Well, the, the money's already being spent, okay? Um, global weight loss, the, the global weight loss industrial complex market size in 2020 was $33.4 billion. And it doesn't work. Our rates are only increasing of obesity. And we're spending that much money. So money is being spent, okay? So there is money out there. And then uh, fatigue, stress, feeling overwhelmed, all contribute to a lack of motivation. That's true. And having an objective data points and a concrete plan based upon those points often restores motivation. So I'm getting at there is that if, if you have lab work showing you this is where this is, this is where I think we can get success. If your doctor sits down and he says, let's try and understand this together. Let's see what really is the cause here. Let's take this apart. You deserve this time. You deserve us figuring you out. That right there is motivation. It's hard to find motivation otherwise. It's hard to find motivation to do something that doesn't work. <laughs> it just is. Um, and then finally, physicians must improve their interviewing skills. They just do. And, and we need to earn the trust of our patients. And, and you can't do that if you're in and out of the room. And if, you can't do that if you look at your patients through that lens of disgust or shame. It just doesn't work. That's not who we are. So to sum this up, you know, uh, complicated conditions, which is what obesity is. It's a complicated condition. People present to clinic with it as rarely just a straightforward stop eating so many calories. There are often other factors at play. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. A hemoglobin A1C will come in. It's elevated. It's a calorie game with those people. We got to get there. We have to figure out why they're eating that much. Yes, valid. But what about all the other people? You know, there's a lot of complicated cases of obesity out there that require and deserve our focus. So, so you know, it's important for your physicians to manage the multiple systems, which means the running labs throughout your body, and they understand what's going on. Then they create a protocol based upon your unique needs. They figure out the diet that works best for you. And then, like we mentioned earlier, that person who did the gluten-free diet that lost 20 pounds Maybe you weren't gluten intolerant. Maybe you just had a long history of stress and you have high insulin. And now your doctor puts together a protocol to reduce your insulin to normal levels. Then you're that person that lost that weight too because it was targeted to you specifically. So treating the cause is essential to long-term success with weight loss in our patients. And employing lifestyle modifications as a tool to your interventions is going to help ensure your patients have success long-term. But ultimately, in the end of the day, it's important to diagnose and figure out exactly what caused this and treat the cause. So I hope this was helpful. And if this was helpful, please like, subscribe, and share. It's important to me that you give me this feedback because if you continue to like these things, I'll circle back. I'll do more on this. Um, if you're interested, I can do a whole podcast on what labs what lab values we would be looking for, like, like how high should an insulin be and when do you test it and what should a cortisol look like 
and I can go into specific treatments as well. So please let me know. And uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Take care.